This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, this is Ross Kenyon. I'm the host of Reversing Climate Change. I want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. There are trillions of dollars flowing into climate solutions. The world's largest energy firms, tech companies, and banks are putting big dollars behind climate tech. If you listen to our show, you definitely know this. So where is the smart investment going? Catalyst with Shale Khan offers an authoritative guide to how we address climate change across the global economy. Hosted by veteran analyst and investor Shale Khan, Catalyst digs deep into climate and climate tech solution with the world's top experts and helps us understand the trends that are reshaping our energy system and transforming the way we power our lives. I listened to an episode of the show recently that I really enjoyed called Growing the Carbon Dioxide Removal Market, which there's a link directly to it in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Ryan Orbuck from Lower Carbon Capital came on. I found it to be a very insightful show. I learned a lot. I thought a lot of the nuance was very valuable to how we're thinking about carbon removal. It asked the right kinds of questions, questions that we grapple with a lot on Carbon Removal Newsroom and Reversing Climate Change. These are the kinds of conversations that should be happening. You can listen and follow Catalyst wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. And here's our show. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Dan Saladino, food journalist and author of Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Hey, Dan. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, A previous guest of mine who is now in pastry school in Paris, lucky her, told me about this book and I knew I had to invite you on. It's a lovely book. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to start with perhaps the biggest, most difficult question to answer, maybe the easiest. I can't tell. Why did you write this book? Well, I have been making radio programs for around 15 years on the subject of food and farming. And I was lucky enough in that work to travel as well. And because it's a radio program about food and farming, we don't really do recipes and cooking. This is very much about the economics, politics, science around food. But very early on in making these programs, I came across this project that Slow Food International had launched from Italy in the 90s. And this was a catalogue of endangered foods, which they called the Ark of Taste. And it was in my very first outing for this radio programme, and I was lucky enough to travel to Sicily, where I have some family history. And so I knew there would be this interesting story to tell. It was February, and I knew the citrus harvest was happening, and I wanted to record that event, really, and thought I would be travelling to... uh, record a celebratory program explaining how this fruit had shaped the island for a thousand years, had also given many of the communities income and also culinary important flavours in their food as well. 
but I actually arrived and there were farmers telling me it was their last harvest and they were going to leave some of the fruit on the tree. Well, they were going to leave the fruit on the trees the following year. And I was told about this project because many people involved in slow food wanted these oranges, these blood oranges grown around Etna to be added to this catalogue called the Ark of Taste. And I didn't know what the Ark of Taste was. I then realised it was like Noah's Ark, but for food. And it included everything from types of cheeses to animal breeds to uh, varieties of crops, so wheat and maize. And then I spent, I must have spent about 10 years making programs and where possible factoring in this catalogue because it took me, uh, if not physically, it, it took me intellectually to different parts of the world into food's deep history about why some foods existed. And then when I was lucky enough to be invited to write a book and naively said, yes, I'd like to do that, and was asked, well, what would you like to write about? There was no question, really. I'd become obsessed with this catalogue of endangered foods and knew I wanted to tell the story of some of the 5,000 foods that were now in this catalogue from 130 countries. But it was only in writing the book that I managed to join the dots because for many years they were just beautiful you know, stories of wonder of different places. But in writing the book, I realized each of these stories was a piece of a jigsaw in understanding how did we get to where we are today in terms of our food system. Wow. Maybe we should use Sicily as a case study. Uh, why is citrus so important there? What's happening to it? Farmers are leaving unharvested fruit on the trees. Uh, is this way of life dying over there? An aspect of it, yeah, a really important part of it. So citrus had arrived in the island, I mean, of being in one of the most important strategic places in the Mediterranean. Traders and, and travelers had come and gone over many, many centuries. And when the first bitter and sour oranges left South Asia and eventually found their way into the Mediterranean, the people in the ninth century in particular, so this is when uh, Sicily was under Arab rule, started to grow the fruit. And then when the when later the sweeter oranges arrived with the Portuguese, that's when Sicily really came into its own as an important supplier, not only to Europe, but much of the world for, for citrus. And this also did shape the landscape. So citrus groves were planted and you still see that today. But I think and, and when I was growing up and going to school in my summer holidays, I would spend many of the summers on my own, staying with my my nonna, my grandmother, because my parents were working. So I, I headed over. And that was the first opportunity I had to step foot on a farm as well. So Sicily was a really important place for me in, in shaping ideas around food and farming. And the citrus is always there. Oranges for every meal. And if somebody had a, a job, either as a teacher or a police officer or whatever, they would, all, they would, they would also be farmers. And uh, most often in the village where my father came from, Ribera, they would be orange growers. What changed was the, the fact that, that many other parts of the world started to produce citrus as a commodity crop and then trade it at lower prices than the people in Sicily who are growing on small plots. So what really has been lost is the small-scale family farm 
and a lot of the diversity of the crop. And so for me, that was an important insight into the fact that it can seem that we have an abundance, but actually there are things that are being lost. And in in a sense, for many people, it was a way of life and an identity because citrus was always part of their their livelihoods and gave them an extra income so they could send their children to university. And at the same time, there were all of these unusual types of citrus because the fruit can mutate quite easily and produce so much diversity. And in many of the plots, uh, many of the citrus groves, there would be a couple of trees that were unusual. And that's why there's the story of the vanilla orange in the book, because that's a type of fruit that very subtle, doesn't have a lot of acidity. But it's just one of these quirks, one of these glorious (laughs) aspects of of food that the people in Ribera prized. You know, it it sold for a great price. But as the commodity crop started to be traded from North Africa and, and increasingly from Spain as well, it just became no longer economically viable to keep these plots going. And so a lot of diversity was lost. And that's part of that's one of the stories told in the book. Has the market just been flooded with something that's easy to transport or sweeter, something like navel oranges has taken the place of this diverse crop of many types of citrus? That's exactly what happened. So the navel Washington arrived in a couple of different points in the 20th century, but really when Sicily felt the need to try and compete with these other markets, they went for the uh, navel. It was seedless. It was big and impressive and sweet as well. And the Oranges are still grown in Sicily, but they are pretty much, it's mostly companies that control the entire supply chain. And in fact, there are lots of companies from outside, not only of Sicily, but Italy, who have come in, big global fruit businesses that have come in to actually buy up a lot of the um, citrus production because they have the economy of scale. The other aspect that really was much of the history of citrus in Sicily, which are these smaller family-sized plots. And I remember my my cousins and my uncles going off to market each week to sell the citrus. That's pretty much disappeared. One of the themes that we've come back to on this show so many times is this tension between centralization and decentralization. And it's a hard question to answer because there are some serious benefits to centralization and scale and operating at commodity scale. You can get a lot of calories for much less effort. Well, it depends on how you count it. I suppose that's a controversial thing I just said. But having this single variable that you're isolating for, which in many cases is transportability or a less complex flavor that's more palatable to more people or a mix of these things, that's way easier than having this confusing farmer's market seasonality approach that is characteristic of more traditional food ways that's hard to share risk across an entire planet. Man, I feel like everything I just said, I think you could take issue with every single part of that. (laughs) Is there anything about what I just said that you think is compelling or do you think that's entirely missing? Uh, I think what you've said just illustrates how complex this is. And and in writing the book, what I haven't tried to do is point a finger and say it's this part of the food system that's to, to blame. And if only that hadn't happened, I think. And that's why I wanted to try and go into kind of different histories of our food as well, whether it's, you know, going back three and a half billion years to when, you know, we start to see the origins of biodiversity itself or, you know, us as a species, two million years or wherever you want to take your starting point. 
back to the origins of of uh, agriculture in the case of the fertile crescent 10 12000 years ago and then in the post industrial era you know the, those incremental steps when new t- technologies new science arrives and so much of this wasn't part of some grand plan or scheme some of it was just we were finding our way through this problem of how do we feed ourselves and so you know most famously with the green revolution it was seen as an important solution to a problem that was being experienced in many parts of the world at the time which was the shortage of calories and in that project it actually within a short relatively short space of time used new genetics crop breeding you know modern irrigation and lots of other inputs to provide those calories but this is where it gets complicated because you know clearly in the context and seen at the time many people believe that that staved off huge amounts of hunger and starvation but it took us into a whole new set of problems which we're now facing with in terms of fossil fuels to provide the fertilizers the water uh, required for a lot of the green revolution crops and the uniformity of the genetics cre- increasingly becoming vulnerable to disease so i think it's extremely complex and i think we now are learning that one of well this is my the key argument really in the book is one thing that we we have neglected for too long is the need for diversity and that's genetic diversity within the food system of crops plants and also animal breeds but also diversity of systems and here we are we're having this conversation there's a war in ukraine a third of you know almost around a third of you know globally traded wheat is locked up in the black sea region we're realizing or we're increasingly seeing with each problem we face global problem whether it's the pandemic or this particular war there is a fragility in the system that that has given us this abundance of calories and just finally the other complexity is us and our relationship with food it did produce a huge amount of calories but did it produce the type of food that we really need when it comes to micronutrients when it comes to you know a more a more holistic view of health and nutrition and we're learning about this new science of the gut microbiome so at the time you know i think uh, there there was a obviously clearly a strong case made where we are right now i think increasingly we are seeing the complexities of the problems that we faced and we need more complex solutions i would argue i think it's a good sign or i think it's a sign of a good book that makes you ask these questions and think without it being hit too heavily square in the nose i think one simple thing we could take away i suppose i postulate this is uncontroversial <laughs> that diverse foods of strange artisanal heritage cultivars and varietals those are the tastiest typically right when you're getting like the maybe it's unfair to pick on the the red delicious apple but that's probably the worst apple you could eat in uh out there it's it's mealy it's not very good eating some strange type um i feel like there's more character it might be more bitter it might be more sour there are health benefits to those as you put in the book but also it just makes our food more interesting and not just so bland and and the same thing over and over right yeah 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 and i and certainly here in the um here in in the uk so for example there are much celebrated i mean certainly for those who who um 
delved deeply into this story, much celebrated writers and experts who were writing about apples at the beginning of, or towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, writing about apples in the way that people today would be writing about wine. I think there was a, an appreciation. So not only have we lost the diversity of the fruit, we obviously, along with that, we've lost the appreciation of what that fruit can be. And you mentioned also about the health benefits. Well, going back to the citrus story, a huge amount of ingenuity of crop breeders to produce something that was bigger, fleshier and sweeter. But obviously, the, you know, what we've also lost in the bitterness and the sourness is the, you know, which is produced by the plant's defense mechanism, are some you know, more complex chemical compounds that we now understand are beneficial to our health, which is interesting because in the book, the communities in northeastern India who still live among the wild citrus trees, they do treat the citrus there as medicine. There's research underway at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew where they're looking at the fact that we've bred out so many of these beneficial compounds. We've lost the bitterness and the sourness and replaced it with sweetness. So again, our palates have changed. Our appreciation of, of these more complex foods have changed. And what I didn't want to write in the, what I didn't want to do in the book is just to end up thinking these were endangered foods and aren't they beautiful, wonderful, quaint traditions. Actually, I wanted to make an argument that they have something that we should value. These foods, I'm not suggesting, will be the foods that will feed the world, but actually they are foods that we will need as we feed the world. So I think we, we need that diversity and we need to find wherever we are, we find ourselves in the world, there will be a diversity around us that we should be seeking out and trying to support in whatever way we can. This was a relatively expensive show for me to produce because I had to go on the hunt for as many of these <laughs> foods that you single out as possible. I could not find Solaire's. I even, I had to email a French fromagerie trying to get them to send me out some and I could not do it. Stitchelton I got, which was oh, delicious. Congratulations. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, that's a beautiful blue aggressive cheese. I loved it. Oh, I got Cantal. Cantal was as close as I could get to yeah. Solaire's and maybe that's more commercially available. So, Solaire's is isn't easy to find here either, and in, in, in a sense, but that is part of I think the joy of this really that there are things that I mean we've become so used to being able to have whatever we want whenever we want, and I've benefited from that myself. You know, I you know I think it's an amazing achievement in many in many ways. This you know the, the fact that we can have access to these things if we're in a fortunate position to to you know access them and and buy them but at the same time the fact that there is a cheese out there that you are still wondering what on earth does that taste like i think that's a that's a great thing and wouldn't it be and it, and this is one of the other things like so much of the book is about food security and the food system and we need diversity but at the same time it's about being human on planet earth in which wouldn't it be so dull and boring that if all of us were ended up wearing the same type of clothes, listening to the same kind of music and eating the same type of cheese. <sighs> I'm going to act like a salty old man for a second with my story <laughs> of walking both ways uphill in the snow. Just growing up, I remember going to Blockbuster and you try to get there as early as you could, but many times the thing, the game that you wanted or the movie that you wanted would be gone. You'd be like, oh, someone rented Spaceballs. Oh God, what's, what do we want instead of that? And I, I sort of liked the early digital age. Uh, it was kind of clunky. Um, we were starting to get more virtual, but it was mostly 
clunky is the word I would use for it. You might have a VHS tape that you might ruin the actual magnetic tape in it somehow. Whereas now uh, I can watch any media the world has ever produced probably within, within a minute. I think I could find mm. almost, almost anything if it exists. And I like that. Uh, I like, and I miss that uh, delayed gratification. Um, mm. I feel like it was yeah. important. I liked the making do with what you had. Am I just a salty getting older kind of person here? Is there something to that? No, I, 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 I do think there is something. And again, I don't want to join you in saying that, you know, the good old days of, yeah, of uh, delayed gratification. But I, I do think, you know, obviously I think there are parts of the world where, I mean, obviously you and I are uh, in a situation where that digital world is within reach and we can access that. Many parts of the world cannot. I mean, that's that's one aspect of it. But I do think there is something which, yeah, just being able to value something because it isn't so easily accessible. And I think I, I growing up for me, I experienced that with music, the, a song would come on the radio or a friend would play me something that he had that I didn't have. And I just think how precious that was and how much I could look forward to that and how much value I placed on that. And I think if everything is so easily accessed then it, it surely it becomes devalued and i think possibly that's where we've ended up with food as well i do think that you know the fact that when i was growing up salmon as a fish was such a rare a rare thing to be able to 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 be able to taste and now it's one of you know it's it's certainly for in, in the uk the most traded fish of all in a lifetime and and that that comes with problems because obviously the the production systems that have made that possible exist with issues of you know what what is it that we we've done to the what have we done to the um you know the environment in in order to control it to create that much protein on that scale so yeah i i think i think that's a, it, you've made me think also about the delayed gratification and the rarity value and not and in your case not being able to get hold of a piece of salaires but i hope one day you will uh, and when you do taste it it will be even even more special for that reason actually i really enjoyed the hunt for it i eventually had to go online to get the stitchelton some of these cheeses were quite hard to find and i had to go to i think i went to five or six different cheesemongers to make this show. And I found the experience of not being able to get exactly what I wanted to be kind of fun. And I thought the cheesemongers respected me that I was after an obscure cheese that they didn't carry. And they had ideas for where I could find it. But I felt like I learned as much from the searching of the cheese as the tasting itself. Uh, so I think people probably should enjoy that uh, clunky, inaccessible, hard to find. Uh, there's pleasure in that. In the 1980s, and into the 90s, I think there was this growing concern about the possibility of people being made ill by unpasteurized milk cheeses. And clearly, if something is badly made or if measures aren't taken in the production process of any food, it will create risks. But there was a, an outbreak of, of a, a, you know, a food-borne illness in the UK. It was, at the time, wrongly attached to Stilton production. And at that point, there was large-scale Stilton production using unpasteurized milk cheese. And the industry panicked and said that we need to, to stop using unpasteurized milk cheese. Even after the link between 
the illness and the um and the cheese was no longer substantiated so it took somebody well then that created a grieving process for many people who had loved this unpasteurized milk cheese and again there's a whole section on the book about why that is the case and the link between the pasture the animals the microbial the, the microbial activity around all of that and through the, the system and the idea that it actually follows through to the cheese and there is something significantly different in the experience of eating one of those cheeses that hasn't been made from a blank canvas of a pasteurized milk so in the uk a guy called randolph hodgson who is almost like the patron saint now of of artisan cheese making in britain because he he has saved so many cheeses and he was the as so many cheeses were lost he was the guiding hand really that allowed people to keep making cheese and or for young people to start becoming cheesemakers and he was the one who said this is wrong the fact that we've lost the king of english cheeses the fact that we've lost this most traditional authentic version of the cheese is wrong and so he spent more than a decade finding out ways in which he could bring it back and with the help of an american cheesemaker joe schneider who'd settled in the uk embarked on this project to do that and because the law by then had locked the cheese in to being a pasteurized milk cheese it was illegal to call it stilton famously joe schneider says i could have made a stilton cheese stuck a banana in it or flavored it with with um cranberries and called it a stilton but i if i'd tried to make it with a raw milk cheese unpasteurized milk cheese i would have been breaking the law and so they had to call it stittleton which is the old english name for the town in which the cheese was traded not made traded <laughs> so uh, it's a it's a it's a complicated but i i love the story and i love the cheese i love joe schneider and randolph hodgson because of what their determination to save what they describe as a an important piece of british heritage that's part of what you're saying right is that pasteurizing you reduce all of this life inside of it and then you have a blank canvas to introduce a new culture and create this mass produced kind of thing whereas otherwise you're just working with the, whatever the cows ate the local bacterial cultures that create something that's truly unique and unable to be replicated and i think that's it it's the the fact that cheese for many people and i and i buy into this as well it's it in terms of terroir or a food that represents a specific place it's hard to find and that captures the flavors of a place it's hard to find another food that could do that because again it's that sense of you know the energy from the sun captured in the in the grasses and the wild flowers perhaps of that pasture and the soil and again the you know the type of breed of animal for that to remain intact throughout the production process is a rare thing and joe's cheese the stifleton is is an example of that as is solaire's but yeah if if the milk is pasteurized and then you introduce a starter culture and i also flag up fact in the book that more than half the world's starter cultures come from one manufacturer based on the outskirts of copenhagen they offer a huge portfolio of different starter cultures but again it doesn't <laughs> have that unique 
profile of the cheese from the pasture, but also I think the complexity that we are starting to glimpse in terms of our food and our interaction with our food. I'm interested right now in a project called the Dark Matter of Nutrition, where they're flagging up the idea that we we know so few of the compounds within our food and are trying to map some of the greater complexity in our in our foods as well. So I think the complexity is something that really fascinates me, uh, something that we can often ignore. And that's one thing that I wanted to try and flag up really in the book is how complex not only was the evolution of many of our foods, but still there are foods out there becoming endangered that we don't even understand how they how they came to be or how they work. In the case of one of the stories in the book, a, a type of maize from Oaxaca, it remained a mystery for, for uh, botanists for many years as to why it was dripping this mucus from aerial roots and growing 16 feet tall in, in really unpromising soil. Turns out that it was about microbes. It was the bacterial activity in the mucus feeding off the sugars being fed by the plant that was helping to fix nitrogen from the air and fertilize the maize. So we've only developed the tests in recent years that actually unlocked some of those secrets of the maize. I'm going to go out on a limb with a question here, Dan. And uh, I'm going to start with a minor insult to your people, but English, English food has a bad reputation. Are there versions of those things that are truly as beautiful as a Stitchleton that have been erased in the era of mass production? Like, is English food's bad reputation a result of mass production more than anything else? Or are you just culturally inferior? <laughs> good, a good provocative question. No, I, I think the problem of British food is it was, as it's been perceived for a very long time. And I think that is no longer the reality. We have you know, amazing chefs, cooks, food producers farmers, markets, we industrialize so quickly and early, and obviously the first to really industrialize, that that disconnect between people and the land was quite violent, I think, and, and a lot of people were moved off the land or ended up in, in urban areas. You mean like enclosures, so, that era? Yeah, well, it, enclosures, yeah, absolutely. And then also, you know, with the industrialization and, and, and new ways of working, you know, so I think a lot, a lot of what then happened was, yeah, foods became industrialized, and 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 then the war, both wars, had a huge impact. So specifically in terms of cheese, by the time of the Second World War, but because of the war and the, and uh, supply chains being disrupted, it meant that the government, um, by law, said there could only be one type of cheese, which was cheddar, because it was the most efficient way of using the milk. And so a lot of skills and knowledge of how to make these other so-called territorial cheeses died out completely. And it's taken a long time to bring them back. Again, there are lots of different factors. There are now a group of cheesemakers in Somerset, so where the cheese originated from, who are making unpasteurized milk cheddar cheeses. And um, they are doing it in such a way that you know cloth bound and they just and i tried one the other day and it was just such a remarkable cheese and so different to what mo many people would think is a cheddar cheese and again it's all to do with not just the way the cheese is made but the you know the, the, the you know the way the, the cows are, are are looked after and what they eat but yeah so i think um it's nothing. <laughs> I don't think it's our culture that it's at fault. It's just been 
attacked on so many levels for so long. And there have been some determined people to try and correct that. I love that. I, I wish that was a more commonly told story. You should try to rehabilitate your country's <laughs> food. I guess I suppose that's a big part of what you're doing, but I think this reputation lingers, even though, of course, London is one of the great food cities of the world. And I've had amazing meals every time I've been to the mm. UK, but you're just a victim of the industrial revolution, it sounds like. Well, industrial revolution, war, economics as well. I think one thing that we have in common with the US is that we have some of the cheapest food in the world in terms of proportion of income and you know cheap in inverted commas because you know obviously it's cheap at the point of sale but i think there's a really powerful argument to be made about true cost accounting that obviously cheap food is rarely cheap because of either environmental impact it can have and also the health consequences of that food as well so you know we have ext- we have extremely powerful retailers so a really really high but more than 70% of of UK food is sold through supermarkets. Many people don't have access to alternatives. So, you know, a, a lot of our choices are edited heavily, heavily by the supply chain and the, and the retail sector. But at the same time, we have, we do have a really fascinating food history and a deep food culture. And we have quite a few foods that have been placed on the catalog that I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the arc of taste. And there are many people who are determined to bring them back. And one of the most humble ingredients in the book is a type of lentil grown in southern Germany that went extinct in the 1960s, revived by a determined farmer who went from seed bank to seed bank to try and find this Swabian lentil. Managed to do so by traveling to Russia and going into the uh, Vavilov seed bank and finding that the sea, the, the lentil had actually been catalogued under the wrong name. And there's a wonderful picture of him online of uh, with, cheering with his hands raised in the air that, of the success of finding this, this lentil. And his story of reviving not just a, an, a farming system, because it was an important crop, a rotation crop, a delicious ingredient as well, different to any other lentil I, I've tasted, a real food in its own right that should be you know, cherished as a in a dish. It inspired people in different parts of Europe to start looking back at what had been grown in terms of uh, legumes and you know, beans and pulses and, and, and lentils in their part of the world. So there was this movement got underway in Sweden. That story then inspired a group of people in the UK to look back at our history and then they realized fava beans had been grown in what is today Britain in the Bronze Age. And <laughs> they set about bringing those back. So, yeah, we have a really deep, fascinating food culture, including fava beans from the Bronze Age that then became, by the 19th century, a crop grown just to feed cattle. And they're bringing it back as a food for the 21st century that's good for the soil, good for us, good they hope also in terms of a fix for many of the pro- agricultural problems we're experiencing and the impact of high levels of, of meat production that we're dependent on and a way of diversifying diets. So, yeah, I think history is helpful in some cases to show show us what used to be grown in certain parts of the world and what used to enable communities to survive far from being quaint you know, food history really important insights into what the future uh, foods can be. Do you think there's any risk as we grow to appreciate these new slash old food ways that we fetishize them in some way that we 
we isolate for them and it creates other damaging effects in a complex system. Uh, mm. Are you able to forecast any of those or? Well, no, I, I, they exist. And I think that is a real, a real risk. And I think it's all about the, you know, thinking what food is appropriate for a part of the world and, and, you know, what is appropriate in terms of its, you know, commercial outcome really of, of being, you know, re-examined or revisited. So th- there's a story in the book, for example, of pu'er tea in China, in in southwestern China, where again it's one of these so-called centers of origin or centers of diversity, where you know wild tea trees can still be found, and these were cakes of tea that could be stored and fermented, and then sent along the tea equivalent of the Silk Road, called the Tea Road. Uh, ending up in places such as Tibet and and further. And when after the, um, well, certainly when China starts to open up, by the time of the Cultural Revolution, for example, it was really debased. And, you know, it it wasn't really, so a lot of the production wasn't carefully done. It was really a type of tea consumed for people who just needed that in their daily lives. Nothing to be prized or valued. When China starts to open up, people start to become interested in these pu'er teas, particularly teas that come from some of the villages in the more mountainous areas of southwestern China. And people start to collect the teas. People start to find some of the more historic teas that have been stored away. And a bubble starts to um, develop in, you know, and the prices become astronomical. You know, kind of a few kilos of this tea selling for millions of dollars. And actually, this does then start to impact on the villages where there are, you know, this is a part of China where there's a lot of, you know, indigenous people as well who have these trees, these, this, and this very rich biodiversity is part of their, that is part of, you know, an important feature of their lives and their history and, and actually a really important part of their future as well. But the, the high price of these teas starts to distort life in the villages and actually starts to compromise the environment as well because they start to actually clear land to grow more tea so it can be so it can be labeled as coming from one of these prized villages so there are really unintended consequences of that can be the risk of prizing or, or place it and putting renewed value on these foods but I, I don't think that has to be the the case so uh, you know there are many stories in the book of supply chains being re-established between villages for example one in turkey where that they are growing some of the oldest known types of wheat so it's an emma type of wheat being grown in eastern turkey um, there are chefs in istanbul who are now supporting the villagers to try and keep this wheat going this wheat cultivation growing that to me and, and there are there are quite a few farmers now um, who are joining the group in the village to try and grow this um, wheat and as with the the German lentil I mentioned, there are now a couple of hundred farmers growing the lentil. So it it can be done in a way in which it's sustainable for the farmers, so they've got a, a good income, and also it doesn't create unintended um, damage to livelihoods and um, and also yeah the farming systems and the environment. But I, I completely acknowledge that it's a really delicate balance, and each of these stories of an endangered food being saved will have its own particular path that um the people around that food take and that, that's why i did i wanted in the book to avoid 
generalities. Each chapter is a specific story of a specific place, a people, a food. Uh, so I think it's too it's it's very difficult to actually explore this idea without going into the level of detail that I've had to go into to actually travel, research, and then look at that particular food in its context. But I do think that there are some of the, our crops that do need greater diversity that these foods might be able to contribute to. So a, a story that people will are likely to be familiar with is the the consequences of the monocultures that are behind the global banana trade. You know, in the 19th century up to the 1950s and 60s, that was dominated by one type of banana, which was the Gros Michel. When that became overwhelmed by a fungal disease, Panama disease, it was replaced by another commodity type banana that could travel well and could be grown extremely cheaply to the point where, you know, we now eat these fruits from tropical places and uh, some of the cheapest foods in, in the supermarket. But that, the Cavendish that replaced the Gros Michel is now vulnerable to a form of Panama disease, TR4. And there are crop breeders now specializing in bananas, looking back at the wild relatives of the banana, the wild ancestors of the banana, and also some of the other bananas that the one and a half thousand bananas that we've cataloged so far around the world to bring in some of the traits that have been lost in the Cavendish that can be found in others that are more resistant to the disease. So, yeah, so I think in some cases it will be communities that should really be the only ones who experience or kind of can depend on these foods because they just cannot be scaled up. But there are other cases in which we've got huge, you know, commodity crops grown in monocultures where, which will benefit from greater diversity. But I think you've got to look at these foods on a case by case basis. But uh, big, big, the big picture is we need greater diversity of every kind in the food system. Really, really expensive, but it's it's a it's an experience. Really, I mean, even just visually to see these these blocks of tea, or even there are these small discs of tea you can buy. There are people who travel from the UK, travel from America, who are great experts in sourcing these teas and they work quite collaboratively with the communities as well so if you know where to buy buy them from it can be a, a wonderful experience and done in a way that will benefit the community i also got to do a fair amount of drinking for this show i drank <laughs> uh yeah. quivery wine i had some bottles of that a lot of lambex and uh, perry which we actually have a great perry orchard and cidery on Vashon Island here called Nashi. That is a Japanese orientation, but I think is, is really lovely. And is also one of those drinks where, why don't I see Perry on menus? Why, why did we all hustle around things like beer and just a couple grapes for wine? Is it just because it's our brains need that type of simplicity? Is it, why, why do we do this? It's, it's so much more fun when we have options. Yeah. I, and I, I think it's, that is something that and that's an important observation in that Perry, for example, it should be the wine of England. I mean, in terms of what grows here very well and something that we had skills for and a huge amount of diversity of fruit to make uh, Perry with. Yeah, it should be on the tables, as should cider. But we are very much a wine drinking nation now. And again, there are, there are a sequence of steps that, that take us to, to where that is. And, 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 you know, hugely complex and fascinating to understand why 
that is and it's everything to do with the fact that you know we had empire where in, in which we could start to import a lot of our food including fruit first world war we lot of we lost a lot of people from the land as well so uh, some uh, perry making can be quite labor intensive in terms of you know harvesting the fruit and then and then the uh, the manufacture it's not easy to make on scale we had uh, one version of it which you might have heard of called baby sham um which it came and went and the wine industry did very well in scaling up and uh, becoming a global trade as well based as you've said on on a relatively narrow number of grape varieties as well but yeah i mean that, that i i in the book i wanted to have every single food group covered really which is why there's tea in there and there's also the lambic beer you know the quevery wine and the perry as well because i you know i was, i wanted to explore what had we lost when it come when it came to the the you know the drinks and wasn't that long ago that certainly uh, in the UK or in Belgium or, or other countries as well, you would have had your local regional breweries or, or drinks producers, and that would have been your local drink. And it's one of the most dramatic stories of consolidation of an industry to the point where one in four beers is the product of one global brewer under many different labels, I have to say. But yeah, it's, it's, it's one business entity. I feel like there's a, a bending back of the sign curve and artisanal production is growing much, much, much more quickly than perhaps ever before. I don't know. Are we coming out of that artisanal production, that industrial revolution? And then in the future, we're going to have 3D printing and home manufacturing. This is, this is a dream I've been assured is coming at some point. Is something similar happening with food? Do you see this trend continuing? Mm, two things to add to what you've just said. So I think one is you know, a process of deglobalization, you could say, partly because of what's happening economically, but also as you know, just going back to the to the war in Ukraine, you know, I, th- I think initially the conversation was all about that we need to di- now urgently diversify our energy supply. And I think the food conversation or the food the observations around food are catching up with that now because of the the warnings that are coming out from the um you know, for example, the the United Nations World Food Programme and others about the consequences of this just-in-time supply chain, which has become so reliant on a, on a relatively small number of producing countries as well. So I think that is a process that is now is certainly fueling conversations about future food strategies, certainly here in the UK, and I know, and I'm I'm aware of that conversation elsewhere as well. That we need. Uh, we might not be able to become completely self-sufficient, but actually greater self-reliance will be a beneficial thing going into the future. That's a big idea for us all to be catching up with after so many decades in which we left it to market forces and particularly we left it to the retailers to fix our food problem. So I think there's a waking up of that now. Also, I think yeah, there is a, I'm not, interestingly, I've just made a radio program with a blacksmith who makes what he describes as pre-industrial kitchen equipment. So, uh, you know, pots, pans, skillets. And his profession, I mean, he's been a blacksmith for 30 years, very much connected with, with people working with metal in other parts of the world as well, you know, across Europe and also the States. And there has been a revival in craft and the interest in these skills that at various points could have been 
quite easily lost. And maybe that's the more human side of this, that actually to make things, particularly to make things with our hands and create things. I mean, if we've been doing that throughout our evolution, it's no surprise that some, that many people are dissatisfied with you know, careers or life experiences where they feel completely removed from that experience and you know, taking risks and prepared to accept lower incomes in order to feel more fulfilled by making things. And I think that's also the case with food, you know, that, that there are people who have become Piat Perry and cider makers and cheese makers. And, you know, I know many people who have uh, started out as bakers who are now, you know, working closely with farmers to bring back the genetic diversity of different land race types of wheat in order to capture lost flavors as well in the bread that they're baking. So I, that's, there's so much reason for optimism. I think, and that's what I've tried to capture in the book as well. So I think some of the greatest, some of the, the major kind of stars of the book are the food, but also the people who've been saving them and spending so much of their energy and their, their working lives trying to protect these skills and this knowledge and and these foods. I think there's a role for hobbyists too. I think a lot of people who work in white collar work that's quite abstracted and computer driven. Uh, myself as well. Many of the shows that we've made recently have been craft oriented. And I don't suppose that I'm especially handy or crafty relative to someone who's quite gifted at those things. But I find the ability to transform and taste and to have this unique personal experience with something that I am consuming or just experiencing without actually eating or drinking, such as woodworking or something like that. I find it to be, even if it's objectively of worse quality than something I could buy on Amazon, I think there's a lot of pride uh, at the learning the skill of practicing something, even if it's not as good as a cider that you could actually buy from a nearby uh, hop shop. I feel like the pleasure of having done it um, on your own and learned during it to almost supersede that in some way. And I think yeah, many people yeah. feel this way. No, I completely agree. And there are some of, I mean, obviously the the beer scene is very different to what it was 20 years ago, but a lot of the people who've made that happen, certainly in the UK, started out as home brewers. But actually, I think it, it, it's even more significant than that in that hobbyists or, or people who are using their spare time to get involved in food production in some way. So if you in the UK in the 70s, when we were losing a lot of food traditions and uh, the diversity, and this is when the Green Revolution the full effects of the Green Revolution were really starting to be felt. So a group of people set up the something called the Heritage Seed Library. And these were just people with you know small garden plots or allotments where they were growing vegetables. And the Heritage Seed Library was the way in which they exchanged some of the um, older varieties of, of vegetables. And they did this mostly because of the, the flavors that they could get from these older uh, varieties that they weren't finding in the ones in sale. That library still exists today. And actually, it is one of the most important resources when it comes to lost, lost genetic diversity in, in our vegetables. And likewise, a lot of the 7,000 or so endangered animal breeds, they've been kept alive by you know, small scale hobbyists, uh, enthusiasts, societies of, of amateurs who've kept those breeds going. You know, so I, th I think without the hobbyists, without the amateurs, without the, the people using their spare time around their working lives to get involved in food production, we would have lost huge amounts of diversity.
we've had a relatively optimistic show more than I might've expected, but we did hint a little bit about Ukraine. And I've seen a, a fair number of articles in the last week or two about coming food crisis. How concerned are you? How concerned should listeners be? It's a really serious situation in that um, we now have currently globally around 250 million people close to famine. The number of people who are uh, food insecure has increased rapidly in the last few months. And the type of wheats that were being exported from the Black Sea region, so you know, wheats that were being grown in, in um, Ukraine, but also obviously now disrupted supply chains from Russia, were some of the poorest countries that were most dependent on, on food imports. So they are going to be the ones where levels of food insecurity and food price inflation will be most extreme. We really don't know where that's going to take us either politically or in terms of the the impact on those populations and you know it's it's a really urgent situation i know at an international level that people are trying to figure out what what we can do but this is also being compounded by the fact that there are now many countries who are halting their imports so india for example has taken a decision to restrict imports of its wheat so already we're seeing a tightening of, of global supplies, and that is quite scary. I didn't mean to make it too grim, but maybe mm. the world is just inherently grim right now. We give you enough reasons for optimism listening. There's yeah, Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but I think that is the most urgent problem we now face currently in the, in the food system is the knock-on effects of this war. And then, as I say, restrictions on exports future harvests are also not looking good when it comes to either flooding in china or drought in the states you know there are a number of factors that are converging that will create huge amounts of challenges globally when it comes to food dan is there any place besides your not to flatter you too much but i very much enjoyed eating to extinction the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them um, the audiobook is also good. You read it yourself as well. I bro. do. Yeah, okay, yeah. I yeah. sat for five days in a dark room. Yeah, <laughs> reading the book into a microphone and uh, having a completely different relationship with my book after that, which is uh, it's fascinating. You know, line by line, word by word. After a bit of a gap uh, from writing it, so I was almost almost felt like I was in the position of the reader. Um, so uh, yeah, no, I, I, I yeah. Bizarrely, I mean, I've really enjoyed the experience, which I'm not, I'm not sure if you're supposed to do, but I did. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Is there any place else that you might like to direct people? If people can, and, and it's available as a podcast as well. The radio program I work on has been in existence now for 40 years. Uh, not all of the archive is available, but I think there's, a, there's around 10 years worth of our programs are available to be listened to and if there's a particular subject or theme and you can go through the archive and look i'm sure there's something there for for everyone really and uh you know we love what we do on the radio program and we hope as many people as, as possible get to listen so uh, yeah please check out the food program bbc radio 4 thanks for being here dan thanks for having you on ross i love the conversation thank you me too. And if you like this conversation, please give us a great rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Send it to a friend and have a lovely day.
Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.